1945, Britain was broke and exhausted, but the country had big hopes for the future, for a free national health service for everyone, for new housing, for better schools and more university places. What were the hopes and ideals we had then, and what became of them? I'm Ros Taylor, and this is the story of how we were promised Jam Tomorrow. What's great about New Unity is they say you're welcome, whoever you are, wherever you come from, whatever your background, whoever you love. So everybody's welcome there and it's radically inclusive. So I think the real failure is that the church has has not tapped into the kinds of rooted spirituality and religious practices that really did matter to people. I think it's very hard to mourn in the modern day because one of the things about mourning is you don't know how it's going to affect you. One of the reasons that it collapsed so quickly after the 80s was that it really failed to take account of women changing roles and to respond appropriately. The Church of England isn't going anywhere. It's still the established state church. It still educates more than a million children in C of E schools. But while Britain is not the unbelieving nation that some would claim, as we'll find out, only a fifth of us say we belong to the Church of England. That's been falling pretty steadily since the war. Even in 1980, it was just 40%. The Church of England is still there at big moments, commemorations, the Queen's funeral. But it accounts for fewer and fewer of the 46% of us who still say we're Christian. The places where people want to worship are changing. We'd rather go to a festival than sing hymns on Sunday morning. Donating to the church collection isn't enough. Some of us want a side of social justice with our sermon. Others are still unhappy about the idea of the Church of England welcoming people in non-heterosexual relationships. In this episode, I talk to members of those new churches to find out what brings them there. We'll hear about how the Church of England drove away a vital part of its congregation, women. I talk to Nikki Gumbel, whose injection of evangelism into the Church of England is hated by some and loved by others. How the British brought Anglicanism to Africa and the Caribbean and how those people created their own religious traditions when they came to Britain in the 20th century. And how even in World War II, authorities were worried that new kinds of belief would lure people away from the Church. The Church of England is being pulled in different directions. It wants to be all things to all people. But is that even possible? I believe in good. And that's one of our sayings, you know, with, with New Unity, is to believe in good. That's our strapline, believe in good. Grace Graham is a member of New Unity, which meets in two chapels in North London. It describes itself as a non-religious church that's radically inclusive. Hang on, a non-religious church? Isn't that a contradiction in terms? What's great about New Unity is they say, you're welcome, whoever you are, wherever you come from, whatever your background, whoever you love. So everybody's welcome there and it's radically inclusive. So as a, as a black woman who's a Buddhist, I can go there and totally feel welcome. There are people who are, who are Islamic who go. There are people who are from other Buddhist practices who go. So it's welcoming anyone in the community and where we live. You know, you have people who are Islamic, Jewish, agnostic and our, our outgoing minister He's atheist, openly atheist. We recorded Jam Tomorrow at a studio off Holloway Road in London. 
It's about a mile away from each of the new Unity churches. On the other side of that road is a church built in 1814. The bus stop calls it St Mary Magdalene, but the placard outside says Hope Church Islington. This is an Anglican church, but it's very far from the traditional idea of a Church of England church, a place of damp-smelling prayer books, hymn numbers on the pulpit, and kneelers sewn by ladies decades ago. I asked New Statesman columnist Tomiwa Awalade how churches like Hope have changed. The Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, in 2019, during the summer of that year, attended a Christian festival called Focus. And Focus is organised by the HTB, which is a connection of different churches, which is led by a man called Nicky Gumbel. Now, ostensibly, those churches, and of course the Archbishop of Canterbury, represent the um, Church of England. But one of the striking things about the um, Focus Festival is the degree to which you can sense an evangelical, charismatic dimension to the type of worship that they engage in. And another striking thing about that is the number of ethnic minority people that were involved in that festival. Focus is an annual festival with a big tent and lots of music and prayer. Think Latitude without the headliners. It's organised by the HTB group of churches. HTB stands for Holy Trinity Brompton, where the movement began in West London. We're all going to be camping together. And if camping's not your thing, although it is really fun, and I'll happily put up your tent if you can't do it yourself, um, there are plenty of hotels and Airbnbs close by for you to just make your way in for the day. And there's going to be plenty of events happening for the kids. I personally might volunteer on the kids' team because of all the things they have going on. The youth team have an inflatable assault course. They're making their own merch. They're going to have spiritual disciplines in the morning. It's going to be incredible for all the family. Nicky Gumbel is the man behind HTB. He was at Eton and Trinity College, Cambridge, at the same time as the Archbishop of Canterbury. In 1990, he launched the Alpha Course, which is aimed at people who are not Christian, but are looking for purpose and meaning in their lives. Alpha is a course, so it runs midweek, and then people join the different churches that are run it. So, so if you do Alpha in a Catholic church, it would look like a Roman Catholic service. If you do it in a Pentecostal church, it'll look like a Pentecostal worship service. If you do it at HDB, it'll look like our Sunday services. And HTB is much more diverse than the traditional Church of England. Much more diverse and much younger than Britain as a whole, in fact. HTB is 42% global majority. So it's our morning services. Last time I think we surveyed it, it was 25% African, 33% Chinese. It tends to be quite young. The sort of median age of someone doing alpha is usually around 27 but I, I mean, that we're not alone in that. There are, there are a lot of young, diverse, vibrant churches in the Church of England. The Church of England's got 16,500 church buildings, and a huge number of them are quite similar to ours. And are these people new to Christianity, or do they come from other Christian traditions sometimes? Well, the, the course is aimed at people outside of the church. It's for people who who wouldn't call themselves Christian, people who wouldn't necessarily go to church. I mean, it comes from my own background. My father was a refugee here. He was uh, fleeing from the Nazis. He was Jewish and he didn't have, uh, was not a church. He was an agnostic. My mother 
was sort of nominal Anglican, but I didn't have a church-going upbringing. And I encountered Jesus in my first year at university through reading the New Testament. And that was life-changing. And it's nearly 50 years ago now, but it's had a profound impact on my life, my marriage, my children, our grandchildren. And I was always looking for a way in which to offer others the opportunity to experience what I'd experienced. And Alpha is is it is an attempt to do that. To give, if if people are searching for meaning, for love, for for belonging, all the things that that every human being is longing for in a way, then we're saying come and explore the Christian faith because actually sometimes you'll find the answer where perhaps you least expect to find the answer to those questions. But this means there's a tension between this new evangelical movement and what people have traditionally valued about the Church of England. Linda Woodhead is the head of the Department of Theology and Religious Studies at King's College London. The question is, how can it reinsert itself in English life as it is today? I don't think that's a question that the the leaders of the church give attention to because they've really moved away from thinking about Englishness. You know, this was really clear in the Brexit vote where two thirds of Anglicans voted for leaving and the archbishops and bishops who spoke came out for remaining. And so the church had sort of moved on into a very evangelical direction where it's a global church, it thinks it's for everyone and the whole worldwide Christian body, whereas the Church of England is really an ethnic church. Go back to the Orwell quote, it's about being English, it's about it's about being rooted in place, it's about the natural beauty of the mists and the place of England, and it's about commitment to your local community. And those are real strengths of the Church of England. People love the buildings, they love the place, they love love the graveyard, the churchyard, they like the tradition, they like the fact that that it takes you back to your parents, grandparents and so on and so on, all baptised, all christened rather, in the language that actual people use. (laughs) And I think that was neglected, that was squandered in a way by the clergy who don't like those things. When you poll the clergy, that's not what they think the church should be about. They think that's somehow all a bit too, I don't know, nostalgic and ethnic and they want a sort of universal gospel of Jesus. And so there's this, this terrible mismatch. So I think the real failure is that the church has has not tapped into the kinds of rooted spirituality and religious practices that really did matter to people. If Anglicanism now is about grappling with questions about the meaning of life and celebrating love, in the Second World War it was very much part of the struggle of good against evil, of Britain against Nazism. In 1940, the Ministry of Information set out what victory in the war should mean to people. Victory means A. Release for Germany's victims B. The right to live, think, vote, talk and worship God as you choose C that the new world which must rise from the war will be Christian and not satanic, spiritual and not material. D. No peace could be justified which does not secure these results. You are fighting for justice and decency between man and man, nation and nation. It hadn't gone unnoticed by the ministry that some people, particularly women, were turning to horoscopes and a belief in fate rather than prayer. People want to believe in something which at least appears to interpret events and trends in our complex and dangerous civilization. The boom in astrology may be regarded as a symptom, rather than a cause, of the decline in Christian belief as opposed to conduct among working people. 
of the absence of any fully satisfying social code and of the absence of any satisfactory external standard against which to measure current events. To feelings of worry and insecurity, it offers immediate, though temporary, antidotes and sedatives, which are continually renewed. That didn't mean the government thought it should be suppressed. In fact, focusing on your own fate, rather than whether the society around you was about to collapse, could even be, as far as morale was concerned, a good thing. The long-term effect of belief in astrology is probably more to stress false confidences than real ones, to emphasise personal interests rather than the common interest, and economic rather than moral or spiritual issues. In the absence of official alternatives, the immediate effects may even be considered valuable to morale and the war effort, since it often acts as a temporarily steadying influence, particularly on women. Ah, women. They would turn out to be one of the biggest problems for the Church of England after the war. Let's go back to 1993, when John Major gave a speech in which he tried to convince Conservatives that we had been right to join the European community and had nothing to fear from Europe. He quoted George Orwell predicting that in 50 years' time, England would still be a place with old maids bicycling to Holy Communion through the morning mist. I asked Linda Woodhead how the Church of England has actually treated women since the war. It's an interesting quote, isn't it? Because the old maids, and it's it's a nostalgic take by a man of what they would like to see England, perhaps not Britain, but England look like. And that view that women somehow do this background work, the contextual work of care and keeping things going and providing a lovely horizon, that of course doesn't sit well with women after the changes in their employment, after feminism, after all those sorts of change in status. Andrew Brown and I, in our book about the decline of the Church of England, argue that one of the reasons that it collapsed so quickly after the 80s was that it really failed to take account of women's changing roles and to respond appropriately. And so what did it fail to pick up on? I mean, obviously women went into work. Was it simply a matter of time that women didn't have the time to devote to the church that they used to? Partly that, for sure, because women were the unpaid voluntary army that was the you know kept the church going, was the absolute backbone of the Church of England, whether that's just attending, uh, bringing children, cleaning the church, doing the flowers, you know, all those absolutely essential functions. And once women start to have jobs and also be looking after children very often. Of course, they just don't have that time. That's affected all sorts of professions, by the way, from publishing you know, through to the church, the withdrawal of that free labour. So that's a major factor. There's also a, a factor, though, about the kind of femininity, the kind of role, the kind of identity for women that the church was offering. Callum Brown, in his book, The, the Death of, of Christian Britain, argues that the church had provided a role for women when they couldn't have public roles. You know, it still provided them a kind of place in the drama of salvation and responsible for for the moral and religious well-being of their families. But as women's roles cease to be just those of the, you know, the mother, the wife and the mother, then of course that's not that's not sufficient. And the church didn't really manage, I think, to find another way of speaking appropriately to women's changing identities. Even though, of course, it allowed them to become priests eventually. It did, after a very long and bitter and unpleasant and draining struggle. It was a long time coming, 1993, the first women are ordained, and then you have another protracted debate about whether women are up to being bishops, which took a very long time. Rowan Williams, it failed under Rowan Williams. Um, it, the current Archbishop, Dutton Welby, had to fix that one. And it all left 
a really bad taste that women were second class, that somehow they'd been in a way cheated by the Church of England, you know, used, but never respected, never treated as equal with men, never thought that they could actually be a bishop. And that happened so long after women were in very senior positions in other careers that I think that was very alienating for many women as well. But in New Unity, everyone has been welcomed from the beginning. There's no legacy of discrimination. Grace Graham told me how she got involved. New Unity, I've been involved in New Unity for ooh, six years, actually. And it was actually my son, who was 11 at the time, who said he wanted to go to church. So I said, which one? And he said, New Unity, because we'd been there for carol services and all those kind of things. Anyway, when he became a teenager, didn't want to go anymore, but I kept going because I really liked their ethos of social justice and getting involved in the community. I guess how it's changed my life would be that I get more involved in community-related things and I'm able to present. So we, we have Sunday gatherings, so I was able to lead a gathering and it was a really good experience for me. And that was actually where I started my work around anti-racism. So that is how it, it's changed my life. So now I, I work with organisations helping them to become anti-racist and have those cultures. Grace talked about New Unity being radically inclusive. And Tomiwa Owolade told me that the secularisation thesis, that fewer people in Britain go to church, is only true for white Britons, for whom black congregations are sometimes invisible. It's not true anywhere near to the same extent for other ethnic minority people. And in fact, as cities in particular become more ethnically diverse, you see that religion and religious identity is being sustained in cities, which is the reverse of the traditional conception we have of, of cities and religion, because we tend to think of religion as something which is more in rural areas and cities as more secular. But this is not what we see as cities in the UK are becoming more ethnically diverse. So these communities are often the descendants of people whose countries were colonised by the British and the British brought Anglicanism to those countries. So how did their worship develop after they arrived in the UK? How is it different from what the Church of England does? What are the other influences in terms of how they worship and the kind of Christianity that's developing? One of the major influences of, in particular, African immigrant communities in the UK is Pentecostalism and other forms of evangelical Christianity which is uh, ironically not even a British influence, it's more of an American influence. So the, the type of Christianity that many African immigrant communities practice is a more charismatic type of Christianity. It's one which insists on a more personal relationship with God. It's one which insists on a more fundamentalist reading of the Bible. And it's one which has a more socially conservative attitude to sexuality, for instance, than mainstream Anglicanism now does. So it's different in all of these significant ways. And I think one important consequence of this difference is that when we think of London, we tend to think of it as the most socially liberal city in the country. But in fact, it's the most socially conservative city in the country. And I think a major part of that is the fact of the type of Christianity, which is practiced by African immigrant communities and also the type of religion in general from the Muslim communities, for example, which is practiced by immigrants from South Asia. 
But there was a period in the 1950s when a very white brand of evangelical Christianity seemed to be taking off in the UK. It was all down to a good-looking young man from North Carolina. At Wembley Stadium, a vast congregation gathered for the opening of the Second London Crusade, a continuation of the great spiritual awakening that has been inspired by Dr Billy Graham, the American evangelist. The crowd at Wembley was packed with young women. Graham told them he believed that the power of their prayers had begun to ease the Cold War. About 70,000 people braved the chilly evening to hear Dr. Graham stress the need of prayer in the world today. And I'm convinced of one thing, that during the past few weeks, we have seen an easing of world tension. And I believe that one of the contributing factors to the easing of world tension and the prospects of an era of peace is the great spiritual awakening that we believe is taking place in many parts of the world. Just like the Focus Festival does today, Billy Graham was offering something that the Church of England didn't. In fact, it was about this time that my mother, who was still at school at the time, left the C of E and joined the Methodists, much to her own mother's disapproval. But what happens to people who've left the Church of England but don't feel an affinity with any other denomination? I asked Linda Woodhead where people are trying to find the values that they used to associate with the Church of England. There's been a sort of fire sale of what the church used to do. And so we still need those things to happen in society. But as the church has failed to be the main provider, they've got hived off to other providers. And undergirding our values is one of those things where the church used to have a monopoly and no longer does. And I think all parts of society have kind of responded to that challenge. Everyone has a sense however dimly, that we have to have values if we're going to function. And so every workplace now has a values statement, sometimes, you know, absurd ones, but every school has got a values statement. There are British values that schools have to promulgate by law now. So there's this huge concern about taking over this role of values provider. And yet, as you say, where do they come from? Where do they get their authority? Are they just window dressing? Is it a sensible way to go on? And and why do we feel such tremendous concern to shore up our values right now? Is it because we've also got a sense that they are being let go of and that the kind of remorseless concern with profitability and economic growth is somehow leaving them behind. And yet the very organisations that are you know, the businesses and commercial interests that are pushing that at the same time are wanting to say, actually, we really uphold strong values. So it's, it's a very interesting picture. We saw something similar going on after the Queen's death, when all kinds of companies, from Marks and Spencer to Anne Summers, vied to mark her death in the most respectful way possible. When Morrison supermarkets turned down the volume of the beeping on their self-checkout machines, they were trying to meet a need they felt was unfilled, however silly the idea felt to some. I asked Mark Vernon, who's a psychotherapist and writer, what it means to mourn someone in modern Britain. Not a queen, but someone you really knew. I think it's very hard to mourn in the modern day because one of the things about mourning is you don't know how it's going to affect you. And so having rituals, patterns, just expectations set over quite a long period of time, like more than a year around mourning, is really helpful. And when those rituals or expectations disappear and mourning becomes a more freelance affair, it's hard on people because they don't know how it's going to affect them and 
particularly in the more difficult times, one of the definitions of mourning might be you don't know quite what to do with yourself. You don't know how to live your day. You don't know how to hold the sadness and other feelings that come. So I think mourning in Britain today must be quite a ad hoc, difficult, and even at times traumatic affair without the expectations and rituals that can guide you through all that. Mourning has changed a lot since the Second World War, and so has death itself. Many of us have never seen someone die. That was even more true during the pandemic. With the medicalisation of death, so that it's, it's governed primarily by scientific, biological, technical needs, I think what that can do is it dehumanises the experience of death it makes it more programmatic than often it is, where the dying process can be quite unexpected, quite random, and then there's periods of calm and peace, but you can't anticipate those. And so when that direct experience of death gets taken away, I think it's very easy for people to fill the vacuum of actual knowledge and experience of death with strange ideas, with even conspiracies. And particularly because there's an awareness behind it all that the scientific account of death isn't adequate for we human beings. And this is not to say anything that anyone in palliative care wouldn't acknowledge as well. You know, hooray for the medicine and for the scientific knowledge of the processes around death. But it's not nearly enough to manage a person actually dying. And so into that gap of knowledge can come all sorts of ideas just to try to fill out the actual experience. What sort of ideas are you thinking of there? What kind of things fill that gap for people? I think one way of thinking about that is to think of the emotions that someone will be left with and then how they might try and express or even get rid of those emotions. So, for example, if they were left feeling very angry about the whole process, it's only human to project that anger onto other people. And then people would have different choices almost as to who they got angry at. It might be the medical profession. It might be government. And so even conspiracies might result with suspicion of government that was driven by the anger that was left behind that someone had to deal with and just didn't know how to deal with. I think we've seen since COVID public lightning rods almost that have been collective expressions of anger, people in public life that maybe do do things that are wrong and yet the emotion that gets discharged towards them seems to be doing more work than just expressing frustration at what mistakes might have been made but is venting far deeper emotions like anger that have been building up over the course of the pandemic. Perhaps things like Partygate. Yeah, so I'm sure that politicians that now have been seen not to have followed the letter of the law are doubly vulnerable. It's not to excuse what they did, but it is to try to understand the public emotion in response, which is, of course, necessary because otherwise you just go on a vicious spiral that builds social distrust, and that doesn't help anybody. (music) 
One religious ritual that people have not let go of is the festival. In fact, lots of us will now celebrate festivals in a way that has nothing to do with belief. They're colourful and a break from the everyday. Mark is sceptical about that, and he told me why. There is a basic misunderstanding of festivals that has crept into society now. Because now festivals tend to be treated as a time to kind of let off steam or to relax, to have a kind of blowout, and then to return to what's often called normal life, i.e. life organised around work. Whereas in earlier periods of time, say certainly in the medieval period, a festival wasn't an exception that proved the rule of working life, but was very much part of life where you experienced time, say, you experienced pleasure in different ways, and broadly in spiritual ways, because festivals, as in the word feast, comes from the saint's day, the feast day of the saint. And so traditionally, festivals were times where you touched life in a very different way and then built that back into your normal life. Whereas nowadays, festivals are treated as this kind of exceptional moment where you don't have to obey the normal rules before the normal rules then encroach. And so the trouble now is that festivals don't really change people. They strangely keep people in the same patterns of life, organised around basically the economic needs of society. So if festivals like Christmas no longer offer a real spiritual uplift, it's maybe not surprising that HTB is so keen to get people together, putting up tents, praying, singing and making their own merch. And if you don't have faith in the Archbishop of Canterbury anymore, there are people ready to take his place, and you can find them on YouTube and TikTok. You get people who are in touch with a side of life, either because of their inexperience or because they've studied it, been on journeys themselves. And, and they can also get huge followings um, because people want to listen to them talking about things like death from another vantage. The traditional phrase might be subspecie eternitatis from the point of view of eternity. And that is almost impossible to find in modern humdrum life. And so you get to these spiritual experts who, when their voice gets out and when people feel they're speaking something that's true, but that's so often missing in modern life, they can be turned to in great numbers as well. The Church of England still wants to be the spiritual conscience of the nation, but it alienated the women it depended on. It's still struggling to articulate a position on homosexuality. One of its best-known vicars, Richard Coles, left the church last year, saying it was frustrating that it wouldn't give the LGBT community equal status. He was in a civil partnership, but stayed celibate because same-sex marriage is still banned in the Church of England. As Tomiwa Obolade told me, plenty of other Anglicans and Evangelicals, in Britain and abroad, find the idea unthinkable. HTB has a new leader, Archie Coates, who refuses to share his views on gay marriage, even though he used to run a parish in Brighton. He doesn't want to be divisive, and compares the issue to Brexit. But the Church of Scotland now recognises same-sex marriage. How long will it be possible for a church that controls more than 4,500 state schools to continue to oppose it? In a city like London, with hundreds of churches, some which don't even ask you to believe in God, the competition for worshippers is intense. I do think that the future of the Church of England, if it, if it is going to have a future, which is another question, is going to consist of 
a greater and more intimate relationship with more charismatic and more evangelical dimensions of Christianity. And I think ethnic minority people, especially in inner city areas, such as in London, will play a big part of that. In the final episode of Jam Tomorrow, I'll be looking at how Britain went from rationing and narrow expectations to an explosion of choice. What happened when politicians decided that more choice was the way to drive up standards? People like to think that they make decisions based on rational, that's a loaded term, but on, you know, that they'll carefully weigh up evidence and costs and benefits and then they'll decide something. And that's really not how any of us decide things. I'm Ros Taylor. This is Jam Tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Jam Tomorrow was written and presented by Ros Taylor. The producer was me, Jay Bailey. Music was by Dubstar, with artwork by James Parrott. Additional voiceover work was by Imogen Robertson. The lead producer is Jacob Jarvis, and our marketing manager is Gina Richard. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. The home intelligence reports featured in this podcast are now held in the National Archives and are available on the MOI Digital website. Jam Tomorrow is a Podmasters production. <laughs>